Michael Kravitz, international cannabis hero and most definitely national American uh, cannabis hero. Thank you so much for being with us again on Hemp Parents today, brother. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, I know, of course, your official role, your most official role, although for a guy who, you know, sits at his computer and works on the cannabis movement globally 14 hours a day, you have many official roles, but you are, of course, co-founder and executive director of Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access and serve on multiple boards, committees, and advisory roles um, at the state, international, and national level. You have been such a force for cannabis reform at the international level. And and even though we did a whole three-part series last summer on this to educate um, the audience and to educate everyone listening, but America in general, over the fact that cannabis prohibition, the fundamental linchpin, the fundamental underpinnings of cannabis prohibition actually exist at the global international level. And what we need to do in order to extract ourselves from that, whether it's from a hemp or from a cannabis perspective, and obviously today on Hemp Barons, we will be focusing on it from a hemp perspective. And I just want to lay out a a little bit of foundation here, brother, and then let you run with it. And I'm just going to ask you a few simple questions so that we can set up the different governmental bodies or international bodies um, that that deal with this, with cannabis prohibition and all, of course, drug prohibition, but we're talking about cannabis today. So first of all, there is the International Narcotics Control Board, the INCB. Can you tell us a little bit of, of something about the INCB. That's one organization involved in this. Yeah. So the uh, INCB, International Narcotics Control Board, is just a, a small group, like 13 members. They're independent, but they're chosen by either the leadership of the United Nations or the World Health Organization uh, picks a couple, Commission Narcotic Drugs picks a couple. These members, these this group of uh, International Narcotics Control Board, actually has a pretty important role, although it's somewhat behind the scenes. When countries fill out the paperwork that's necessary to file at the UN for the drugs that they use routinely for their for their treatment of, uh, you know, at hospitals or whatever, those very tightly controlled drugs like morphine, for example, they fill out paperwork at the UN so that at the end of the day, there's smooth transit of these drugs around the world. And the countries cooperate well with each other and people get access to the drugs they need. That's the system. That's how it's supposed to work when it's well oiled. And the International Narcotics Control Board takes care of that paperwork. And they have two other jobs. One of them is actually to help the World Health Organization ensure medicinal access to, to drugs. And that's something, you know, we all would like to see a little bit more of them uh, actually promoting and helping to support the medicinal access to cannabis. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice, right? They, they haven't been necessarily that helpful over the, over the years. And then finally, they're supposed to be like this, you know, called quasi-judicial. But basically what it comes down to is countries don't necessarily uh, always have the expertise inside their country and follow all the history and everything of these treaties. They, there are people within this International Narcotics Control Board and within its, its structure, uh, you know, institutional structure that does have a very strong knowledge of the treaties and can help member states understand them and, and interpret them and read them. They're not supposed to be telling member states what to do. Um, and, and I think that's a, a key thing that I'll just add, you know, to your question, the answer uh, by saying that I want people to understand that 
the United Nations here isn't like you might see it in other places where it comes and does things, you know, as, as a UN. This is member states. This is countries doing this together and doing this drug control together. And they've brought together a couple of little groups and agencies inside the UN to help them with that. But the countries actually run the show. And these uh, groups like the International Narcotics Control Board are supposed to be um, actually just very helpful to government. And that's one of the things that we've you know, presented this sign-on letter that you'll probably be talking about in a minute uh, was to address that they actually have gone a little bit over the rails on that. Excellent. Thank you. That's so such a great setup for the INCB, the International Narcotics Control Board that is appointed by the United Nations. So the United Nations, of course, is an international body. Not every country is a member of the United Nations. And just as you clearly pointed out, it is the member states, which are the nations that are parts of the United Nations. That's what we call the member states that do their own legislation. I mean, you can lobby that body of legislators, essentially, is what the, the member states are. They they together, like any other legislative body, uh, create resolutions and or treaties. Now, there are two treaties that created by the United Nations that govern drugs and certainly cannabis prohibition. That is the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs and the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances. So these are old treaties, 1961 and 1971, that really control cannabis prohibition uh, globally. Now, to further set up, before we go into what's what's happening right now and the the, uh, developments taking place, let's also, we've talked about the INCB, we've now talked about the UN, the United Nations. For a minute now, let's just talk about the role of the World Health Organization's Expert Committee on Drug Dependence. That uh, that acronym, folks, is the WHO, W-H-O, E-C-D-D. So we've got the INCB, we've got the UN, and we've got the WHO, E-C-D-D. Tell us a little bit, Michael, about the, uh, about the World Health Organization's Expert Committee on Drug Dependence. Absolutely. Before I do that, I, it, it's kind of obscure, but we should also mention the 1988 treaty that you're right in what you said, absolutely, that everything about cannabis and the cannabis plant and THC uh, is all in those two treaties, the 61 and 71. But the 1988 treaty also is a drug control treaty. It just had to do with like organized crime and stuff like that. That was, uh, you know, the, the the time period where they were just starting to get their brain around uh supply reduction, you know, and, and in 1998, when I came in 10 years later, they were trying to get their brain around demand reduction, 2008, 10 years later, after that, they were trying to get their brain around harm reduction. So if you look, there is sort of a flow to this stuff, right? Moving forward. <laughs> it's not, it's a glacier. you know. Yes, totally. And that, that would be the 1988, I guess, convention against illicit traffic in narcotic drugs and psychotropic substances. Absolutely. Just, it goes on and on. Right, right. Like I said, it may basically focusing on organized crime mostly. Uh, th- there's actually provisions in that treaty that were never, e- ever, even slightly applicable in the United States, and and very well highlight why constitutions of each individual country are considered so important in this dialogue. Because if the treaty 
it can, conflicts with the constitution of a country, the constitution prevails. And in this case, the 1988 convention called on outlawing t-shirts, uh, posters, anything that, uh, you know, made uh, drugs out to, in some sort of positive light. Think about what that would have meant if it was enforced inside the United States, right? Oh, we wouldn't have had the movement. I mean, that literally stops the, the entire movement. So thank God. But that what, what we just said in the, in the last 120 seconds, brother, is, is exactly why it is so important for folks to understand that this international control is so important and how the member states deal with that international control. Because exactly, can you imagine, Michael, if that had been enforced in the United States? And we would literally not have had a movement, no posters, bumper stickers, T-shirts, websites, all of those things. Like we wouldn't have been able to do that. It is just absolutely critical that as we work at the state level and as we work at the national level, that we understand the walls will not truly come down until they are taken down brick by brick at the international level. And with that, my brother, will you tell us about the WHO ECDD? <laughs> yeah. So the, the WHO has a special role to play. And, and when I first started working on this stuff, I thought the World Health Organization was basically part of the UN. And, and it, it is part of the, I guess you, you'd say the UN family. Uh, the United Nations and the WHO are actually separate entities. And if I understand correctly, the WHO has a, a member or two more, meaning one or two more countries that have signed on. With the drug control, for example, we have 186 countries that signed on. It's not an insignificant number of countries. It represents, you know, I guess what we would call the free world. At the World Health Organization, they have a very strong written relationship with the United Nations on this drug control where they are given a, a very interesting role. So this is how it works. There's a drug control program that uh, commission that meets in Vienna, Austria. It's called the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. And they do meetings every year and they make decisions on drugs and they can actually make the decision right on what to do with the drug. But they can't do the evidence collecting or the fact based recommendations. The recommendations on what to do are made by the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization reviews the evidence, makes a factual determination, makes recommendations for changes up or down in scheduling within the treaty. And then those aren't binding because, again, the World Health Organization doesn't have any role to play in actually making the rules. They just make the recommendation. But the Commission on Narcotic Drugs can't make the recommendation. They can only enforce the rules. It's kind of an interesting relationship, really, in the end, and a very mutual uh, relationship. So the World Health Organization was asked, uh, you're going to love this, by a, a resolution that came out of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs years and years ago. It was uh, 2009. And Japan and Azerbaijan put forth a resolution trying to outlaw Canada seeds. And seeds and stocks have always been recognized uh, clearly as exempt under industrial exemption within the treaty. Uh, so, so to make seeds outlawed at the international level is really quite a bit more dramatic, I think, than Japan had realized. And what that was interpreted as, that resolution, it was interpreted as passed and handed over to the World Health Organization as a mandate to look at every facet of cannabis and really decide if it needs to be added in a control, if it's not, or if it needs to be taken down uh, and, or up in scheduling. And that's the determinations that they made. And they actually took like five years for us working in Geneva at the World Health Organization 
through the all these meetings, bringing them all the evidence that we've collected in the world. I mean, basically bringing our entire cannabis movement to the table and saying, here, this is everything we've ever learned. And it took a hundred of us, uh, you know, five years, <laughs> but we gave them our mind milled. And at the end of the day, they did a responsible job. They made some very good recommendations, very bold recommendations. They, they couldn't go as far as anyone would like to go. I mean, the World Health Organization actually said that it doesn't belong even with the, the other drugs that are in the treaty. They would have like descheduled it, quote unquote, if they could have. But that would require rewriting the treaty, not just rescheduling. And, and they thought and they said that they thought that their mandate was just a reschedule. So that's what that's what they recommended. But at the end of the day, the United Nations actually accepted their recommendation, at least that one that rescheduled cannabis and removed it from what was called the most dangerous drugs category. And as of December 2nd, one year ago, basically uh, removed cannabis from the most dangerous drugs category of the of the treaty. And, and here we are. It's uh, been a cascade of events that have happened around the world as a result of this change. And it's just beginning. Yes. And of course, and, and, um, certainly one of those reviews, particularly as it relates to hemp, although it was done on a pure CBD. So a CBD isolate, which may or may not have been derived from hemp or marijuana. But when we're talking about pure CBD, it doesn't matter where it's from. Pure CBD is pure CBD. Uh, but of course that critical review of that came out in, uh, June of 2018 on CBD declaring it's genuine, uh, it's generally safe safety profile no evidence of abuse or dependency, those types of things. It's one of the, of the incredibly important work uh, that the WHO ECDD does. Well, this is, a, you know, you scratch the surface of that, you really need to go into that for a second. I hope you'll indulge me because it's really important to understand what happened there and how important uh, the going forward. Here's the reality. In March, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm wanting to address my hemp audience here. We're using the word cannabis and drug quite a bit and my audience is not used to that. And I'm, I want them to understand that we are, we are going to talk about this from a hemp perspective. And so I'm bringing up the fact that it, 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 hemp is very much involved in all of this. And anything that they do with cannabis that affects hemp is a problem for the hemp movement. And sometimes they do great things for hemp, like the critical review on CBD. So well, just, to, just to emphasize the point that you just made, um, look at what I just said about Japan. I mean, that could be seen as an attack on hemp. If Japan had succeeded in what they had tried to do, it would have devastated the hemp industry worldwide. So yeah, this stuff might require a little bit of translation, but I, I get you and, and people should really get that. Yes, no, totally. It's so important. And and for example, another thing about uh, in Japan is that in Japan, if we talk about hemp extract or just continue on the for dem demonstrative purposes that the hemp derived CBD train, you know, that it's it's just not legal in in Japan. Japan requires for that extract to be extracted from either sterilized seeds or the stock. And I think we all know that sterilized seeds and stock are not uh, great sources sources for cannabinoids, like at all. Um, so it's just interesting stuff. But as we move back to um, the INCB, 
In March of 2020, as you know, the INCB launched a cannabis initiative, and the purpose was to issue guidelines or a manual of good practices on the international drug control requirements, you know, for cultivation, manufacture, and utilization of cannabis for both medical and scientific purposes, and also to support member states in complying with the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, um, as amended, uh, and on the, on those requirements, just as you had mentioned in the beginning here. But the the draft guidelines raised a series of questions. And on December 2nd of this year, so just very, very recently, thanks to the leadership of, of FOT and it looks like 188 NGOs, some major letters have gone out about the concerns uh, that have been raised. Can you elaborate for us um, on those concerns. Letter went out to the United Nations, a letter went out to the INCB um, from this over 100 NGOs, almost 200 international NGOs. Well, this is our second uh, letter, uh, open letter that we sent. The first open letter was uh, more looking at the bias and the sort of overstepping of the mission, cre creeping into other areas of interest, you know, like human rights agricultural rules, uh, industrial applications and stuff like that, that's you know, clearly not within the mandate of the, of the International Narcotics Control Board. So we sent that letter. And interestingly, just one little comment I'll say about that, which I think really helps uh, seal the, the gap in my mind of something that I wanted to say. You, know, the, the, you can boil all this stuff down, like there's six recommendations that the World Health Organization made to the UN and only one of them was accepted. And it could take me an hour to explain all those other you know, five that weren't accepted. Uh, and, and all this stuff about the different treaties could take me another hour. But actually, in about 30 seconds, I could explain what I think you need to know. And that is the World Health Organization's recommendations at the end of the day tried to, really did, try to level the playing field between the plant material and the un, unnatural, you know, non-plant-based copy synthetic drugs that are out there on the market. And in both in the case of CBD and in the case of THC, there is a clear advantage to companies that want to produce these things purely from synthetic chemicals and not from plant material over farmers that want to produce the, the plant material to produce these cannabinoids. And that's a, a disparity that the World Health Organization tried to correct with its recommendations. And it's a disparity that we called a bias when we were looking at it in their writings of their initial guidelines uh, that they came out with. So, and to bring it up to today, now <laughs> we got a really good response from our initial complaints and it wasn't, we weren't alone. There were countries, a lot of other countries and, and uh, you know, around the world that uh, were saying, I guess, similar things, you know. So the International Narcotics Control Board, I guess, did reel it in a little bit and, and not, you know, be so bold in what they were trying to tell countries to do. Uh, like I said, they're not supposed to be telling countries to do anything, right? Uh, and but but they also shut down the process completely. All of a sudden, it went from you know, hard to see in to the windows closed. So now this current letter is like, hey, you know, why be so secretive? I mean, you're being more secretive than the UN Security Council. Is that really called for? <laughs> you know, so much so. And and now let's talk. And and of course, the the three part series that we did with you and Kenzie on hemp barons last summer was so fantastic and went into those five recommendations. Um, but let's talk now uh, some more about what 
is going on at the international level. Basically, we know that the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs was very clear and specific. In fact, it's just baffling with as clear as it is that we are in this outrageous position. It was very clear that these these substances would be scheduled based on their medicinal or drug value no, that 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 convention the narcotic drug convention had absolutely nothing to do with industrial purposes of this incredibly useful and versatile industrial crop it was not supposed to even go there at all yet they have included those industrial purposes can you elaborate on that for the audience michael yes um it's something that in our research and in our work, uh, we're actually working on a, a journal article, article right now. Kenzie uh, is, is drafting an article, uh, author of a wonderful uh, piece that hopefully will be published pretty soon on, on just this issue about how this all works, this industrial exemption in the, in the International uh, Drug Control Treaty. Uh, but it's very straightforward. Um, the, the example, one of the examples that they gave that I find so interesting, if they want to talk about, oh, well, uh, you have to take the drug out of it. It can't be have any drug in it. It has to be devoid of THC or whatever before it can be. Have. Well, think, consider this. In the commentary of the treaty, it says it gives, it gives the example of morphine being used in photographic developing. <laughs> and you, you can't you know, demorphine, morphine, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's morphine, right? It's, it's funny to, to think about. So anyway, uh, the, it's clearly the case that there are industrial applications for things. And I, I, what I've found and what I think is important from my recent sort of mind uh, experiments on this is that it's not without control. I mean, when you take it out of the drug control and you put it under industry, well, then you have controls that are part of industry, a whole series of controls under agricultural uh, controls uh, going all the way from our U.S. Department of Agriculture all the way up to the Food and, and uh, Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and uh, you know, trade, the same thing, you know, with our uh, Secretary of Labor and, and our state's uh, uh, departments going all the way up to the World Trade Organization. You see what I'm saying? It, it, there's infrastructure for the regulatory control necessary to conduct industry without harming the public and for the greatest benefit for the public welfare. And that's the, that's the, 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 the real trial. That's the real question. Is this something that overwhelmingly can be done in, in a way that produces a net benefit over the, the net negative? And, and I think that our treaty, these drug control treaties, in our estimation, have really undergone a change in their interpretation from the beginning. They really get the sense from the beginning of these treaties that their goal is to try to keep the genie in the bottle. In other words, they're creating some really heavy duty pharmaceutical drugs. And as a result, they're creating all kinds of stuff that, you know, is really scary and dangerous. And, and they need to keep that from getting out, uh, uh, you know, being diverted into uh, some sort of public access that would be horrific. Um, and, and that is, I think, what the drug control treaties should do, uh, protect the public from very, very dangerous substances that are being created as a result of our pursuit for pharmaceutical um, benefit. 
And, and, and it, that's what it's all about. It's about medicine. If you claim something as medical value or you're in the pursuit of a medical benefit and doing research, then the treaty is going to continue to be something that is going to be relevant to you. Um, even if you're dealing with hemp, you know, that's, that's the line. That's the world that we live in. Uh, I think, you know, one last thing I'll say on that is that at the end of the day, when we get cannabis and, and maybe even coca uh, as well in the near future out of this box and allowed to be used in, in commercial use, reminding people that they probably have a Coca-Cola not too far away from them that has actual coca product in it. And uh, countries like Peru and Bolivia and others that have been growing this stuff and using it traditionally for eons aren't able to participate in that commerce uh, in, a, in a righteous way because of the drug control treaty. No, that's industrial use and, and you know, can be controlled and regulated. And we're going to work towards that. But even though at the end of the day, that drug control treaty is still going to be there that is actually, as the World Health Organization put it, is preventing people from getting good and reasonable access to medicine and making it harder for them to access medicine. And that's unacceptable. The drug control treaty needs to be effective at protecting us and helping us to protect ourselves from some God awful, mind numbingly dangerous drugs. And at the same time, it needs to be able to support medicinal access, promote medicinal access. You've given us um, a couple of examples, and that was a great one, um, agricultural, industrial, on coca and Peru, et cetera. Could you give us some examples of the way these treaties or the way the international treaty system, I, I, I mostly move all of this down to the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotics, um, Give us some examples of how the current the current reality of those treaties and how they are being enforced in the United States affect hemp specifically. Well, um, it's it's one of these things where I could easily just you know lap off the question and say, well, it doesn't affect hemp, right? But no, it, it really, if you look throughout all the time that we've been activists, you know, and, and before 10, 20 years before, you know, when the hemp movement basically started, in the United States, uh, and, and any cannabis movement started in the United States in the 1960s and 70s. Basically, the international treaties have been there all along. And, and I look at it this way. It's like we're shadow boxing, right? You're, you're punching at, at a shadow. And beyond the mirror, on the other side of the mirror, that's where the actual problem was. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we've been uh, fighting on this national level uh, this uh, petition to reschedule cannabis. And that's going back all the way to, I think, 71 or something like that. And it's still alive. It's, I don't think it's ever died. I was part of it for a while with the uh, ASA versus the DEA. Remember, there was a little splash where we won a little ground while I was- <laughs> America's for safe yeah, access. Yeah. And uh, uh, so this thing, this uh, fight to reschedule cannabis, we were working on, on these principles of the U.S. federal law where you- you know, prove that it has accepted medical value and you show, you know, these different tests. But you read a little further down the Controlled Substances Act, and I mean, literally just go a few lines down and it, where it says treaties and, and other agreements, etc. And you read that first piece of text, it says that the attorney general will make determinations about our schedule of these drugs based on the reasonable accommodation of the change in treaty. 
with, with a disregard of the previous chapter. It literally says with a disregard for that previous chapter that I was just talking about. So think about that in terms of 20, 30, 40 years of activism, where if we ever did win, if we ever did prove in court, absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had to change. They just say, we can't because we've got it written in our federal law that we follow the treaty. That's where the treaty has been all this time. And you only find this out when you go to the very end, you know, you fight and fight and fight and you're in federal court and you got the DEA on the other side, judge in the middle. And that's when you hear the treaty every single time. It came up in the Craker case in Massachusetts with maps, came up with the DEA case with the patients at a time, with the, the patient access to, you know, came up with our uh, citizens uh, class action that we did in Pennsylvania with Larry Hirsch. Uh, it, it just came up every single time, but you have to really fight for a long time before they even pull that final hammer out. And what we're about to do with regard to federal law is interesting because right now, uh, the, you, the contemplated laws that would deschedule cannabis completely and finally get this boogeyman off the, off the shoulders of farmers, because I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to have millions of plants out there, uh, that are hemp legitimately properly hemp and have some DEA agent think otherwise, right? And that's where the marijuana really means something to the hemp farmer. And, you know, we got these bills in Congress that deschedule cannabis, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change the that little part about the treaty that I was talking about. So, you know, it, it, that treaty thing doesn't have any ability to come back and bite us. But what I just said does give you the impression that they haven't really thought about this much. They haven't really thought about like what we're going to do about the treaty, how we're going to handle this, you know, at the world level. To a certain extent, we've promoted this stuff at the world level. We've been the cops, you know, that would enforce it. You know, there's no police at the world level. Like I said, all these countries are there by their own cooperation. And, and uh, you know, the police of the whole thing has been the United States, where if you don't toe the line, then we would sanction you. So when the United States changes, it's going to be no small thing. But yet we have very little discussion, I think, at the national activist level about how to handle that. And I think that uh, Congressperson uh, Mace, Congresswoman Mace from South Carolina with the bill that was put in just recently that looks at cannabis, what they call crude cannabis, no matter what percentage of THC or cannabinoids it has in it, it's considered an agricultural crop, full stop. What you produce from it then determines how to be regulated and uh, you regulate it appropriately. That that's how we need to move forward and we need to heal this divide, bring everything together. Absolutely. And and in that, in fact, ASTM, American Society for Testing and Measurement, another organization not related to this, this entire drug control scheme that we're talking about, but however, very related to creating standards and testing and measurements um, for things. They, of course, have the D37 Committee on Cannabis and are basically working to define different types of cannabis for its end purpose, regulating it for its use, as you, as you have continued to say throughout this interview. So there would be medical cannabis, there would be nutritional cannabis, there would be industrial cannabis. You know, these are all different forms of cannabis, but regulated for their industrial use. And then there are obviously various standards and testings and measurements for each industry there. But but point being that that's where we have to move through, get as, as quickly as we can separate ourselves or heal ourselves from decades of hysterical 
propaganda and prohibition and all of that social engineering and just and, and leave that behind and shed it off and then begin to regulate this very versatile, valuable plant for its intended use. What is it being grown for and regulate it that way from there? And, you know, the other thing that I want to just mention is that it comes up all the time in DEA world. And, and in fact, and, and we certainly haven't dealt with or thought about our government doesn't seem to be thinking about the decisions that they're making with this plan. And I'm glad as it affects the 1961 single convention on narcotics, because you'll see the DEA over the years, whether it's lawsuits, whether it's various petitions, uh, whether it's press release or other statements or interim rules or interpretive rules, you know, they will say, well, we, sorry, our hands are tied, hemp. Because uh, we're, you know, we're a, a signer and we're a member of the 1961 Single Convention of Narcotics. So all of these years they've been saying that and they're still saying that um, over and over with marijuana, with adult use and medical type cannabis. But we manage through legislation, through federal legislation and years of the movement, obviously, um, to get the United States to interpret its relationship or obligation to the 1961 Single Convention of Narcotics differently. Although I guess what I really should be saying is we didn't exactly point that out. I don't think anyone really said to the legislators, of which there were many, um, you know, who created and co-drafted the 2018 and 2014 farm bills for that matter. It's not like someone said, hey, you know, there's this 1961 single convention on narcotics. I mean, those those conversations maybe were had with very sophisticated staff um, of the key legislators, and it probably went in one ear and out the other. Well, for many, many years, work, I started working at the UN in 1998, if you remember. That was the first foray I, I had into the system with a big display on cannabis at the World Drug Summit in New York. And ever since then, you know, since 1998, and in that entire time when I gave briefings to leadership in the hemp movement, every single time I spoke, pretty much, I said, hemp is exempt. Hemp is exempt. So it's such a spring reaction it's hard to say, you know, we might have, I mean, that's the point of my work in many cases is to make sure the person that is likely to need to say the right thing can say that right thing. And often, you, you know, how do you, how do you fight a, a five alarm fire by kicking over the can, you know, into the sink, you know, it, that started the fire, right? Yes, absolutely. But, but but the the point is though that while you're yelling the reality, which is hemp is exempt, hemp is exempt, you have the DEA yelling back at you. No, it's not. No, it's not. Until we a federal Congress move. This is an interesting place to, or a, 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 an interesting point and a good place to interject that the DEA has actually been in conflict with the State Department more than once on this stuff. Uh, the State Department, as you know, is very correct interpreted that you can actually contract out cannabis. You don't have to grow all the cannabis. Uh, you, you can contract it out. What the treaty requires is that there be a national agency that oversees it all, that, that actually takes con constructive possession. It, it knows where this stuff all is. You know, that's what they want for the purposes of, of control and, and regulation and oversight. Uh, they don't require, and, and the DEA, of course, said, no, we all have to go to Mississippi. It has to be grown in Mississippi, right? It, it, it's an argument back and forth. And the DEA, uh, again, arguing with the State Department on this, uh, it's, it's sad, uh, really, to see that. But, but no, absolutely not. Uh, the, the United States federal government, if you want to hear them, I've got a recording of the United States government interjecting in the uh, 
third committee of the United Nations just about a week ago talking about how the the uh, International Narcotics Control Board doesn't tell the United States, you know, how to how to do these things, <laughs> and that uh, you know, be, yeah, it's just it's amazing. You really need to hear for yourself how how this unfolds. The uh, United States has ex- has has accepted that cannabis has medical value, for example, over at the United Nations. And, you know, inside that fight, we're still fighting to get the United States to accept that it has medical value. There's many that are looking at that, uh, that, that long, long lawsuit I was just talking about and thinking that's the magic button. Oh, and if we could just get them to accept it as medical value. Well, we did. Our testimony at the UN, I can point to it where we, where we said, oh, the minute we approved Sativex as, uh, I mean, uh, not Sativex, the uh, Epidiolex. Uh, that's our United States representative at the UN said that once we I- accepted the use of Epidiolex as FDA approved drug because it's a cannabis uh, produced drug from an extract, that's how it was produced in the in the FDA filings. That m- meant that we had an accepted medical value for cannabis, and I just, it blew me away. I did, just fell off the chair when I was there and heard that. But anyway, that's the that's the thing. Our State Department is. It's it's fascinating, and there there and there's no choice but for. I mean, this is what like all of a sudden you push 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 for change, and then the next thing you know, one day you wake up change, (laughs) which is why I say wake up every day and make change, guys, because eventually change happens. I promise. Yes, it does. It really does. Hemp is legal, Um, and and the United States just argued at the United Nations that yes, indeed, we have accepted the fact that cannabis has medical value, or we would not have approved epidiolex. A, a hemp extract, essentially, um, an isolate, as it were, but from from cannabis. You know, just amazing um, that those things happen. But uh, but up until recently, and certainly up until the, the legalization of hemp, when we talk about hemp and say hemp is exempt from this, we still got the DEA saying it's not. It's not. It is not exempt. Hemp is controlled. Hemp is just uh, uh, is included with all of these other things. We don't care if it if you're using it for industrial purposes. And the fact that this treaty is only about medicine. It's not about building materials. <laughs> look, look at this for, for a second. A point where the U.S. government argues with the uh, International Narcotics Control Board is over CBD. I mean, excuse me, THC, where uh, they believe that THC, uh, if it's synthetic, it's, it belongs in the 1971 treaty. But if it's plant-based, it's in the 1961 treaty. But the 1961 treaty clearly says, I mean, literally says it right in the text. It applies to whether it's made synthetically or plant-based. I mean, it literally says it. So, you know, and the United States just is like, you know, incredulous about it. Of course, it, it is uh, in both the 61 and, and the 71 uh, has, has some application here. Um, so that's just one point. And then the second point is that with the CBD, what happened? was if you're making a plant-based CBD extract and you're selling it out there, especially for some health or, or medical benefit, and you're drawing it from plant material and it has some trace amount of, of you know, cannabinoid like THC in, in that, which would many, many times it would if it's made from plant material, you know, not an absolute isolate, like you said before, then they would what they would say is, oh, that's an extract of cannabis because there's this blanket language in the 1961 treaty of an extract of cannabis. And what the World Health Organization did was they actually looked at CBD on its own, on its own merits, plant-based or not, just looked at CBD and determined as a substance, is it a scary substance? And it's not. It has medical value. It does. They went back to the UN and said, hey, we looked at CBD and we're not going to put it in a control. 
if they had put it into control, that would have made that argument done because the UN would have quickly accepted it and the UN and the CBD would be sitting there you know, right next to THC in the ridiculous kind of situation that we've got with that. But they didn't. And CBD wasn't added in. But they even went one step further because of the fact that uh, our founding, you know, fathers, there wasn't any mothers, I don't think there, but our founding fathers and mothers uh, uh, of, of these treaties uh, just put this language in there. They didn't do any scientific evaluation. We found that out. They didn't really know what they were doing. And this is our legacy of that is these kind of embedded problems because uh, this uh, CBD situation and THC situation all stems from that lack of knowledge of putting that general purpose net language. And, and again, the, the thing that the World Health Organization felt was too much for them to you know change because it wasn't just a change in schedule, it was rewriting the treaty. This is what it is. Again, I could go on for hours to explain it or just 30 seconds. And the 30 second version is the treaty is actually written around like these three pillar drugs, coca, cannabis, poppy, and when something's going to be added into the treaty for control, they compare it to those and they say, is it like coca? Is it like, you know, morphine? Is it like cannabis? And if it is, then they add it into control. So to take that out of the treaty is going to be, require, as you might imagine, a pretty serious rewrite of the treaty. Just major stuff. Now, what is the call to action as we as we come to a, a close? Um, what what's a call to action specifically? If we want to make sure, obviously, I'm a cannabis activist. All forms of cannabis, the plant needs to be liberated, and the truth of the scientific truth and the real data um, of what this plant can do and is and what its dangers are and are not obviously need to come to light and law and regulation need to be commensurate with the reality of the plant. Um, but for hemp specifically, what is there, is there a call to action? Is there anything that just regular citizens can do um, versus what NGOs can do? Because you're speaking um, to an audience of regular citizens. And you're also speaking to an audience of activists that belong to many NGOs, as as you and I belong to several and run several. Yeah, you know, I, my my activism over the years has really bridged that gap, uh, being someone who's very comfortable at the most hippie kind of pothead conference, and someone who's uh, you know, worked with the Hemp Association, you know, breaking down uh, crop values and and uh, and uh, profit margins at, at a farming expo right and and the and and the vast spectrum between those two and i guess what i have to say for everybody is they need to put aside any differences any preconceived notions and and start looking at all this stuff uh you know in a in a group fashion as a, as a team uh, the couple of bills that are before congress right now that would deschedule cannabis are the focal point for everybody. Everybody needs to work on that. And it may be about adult regulated cannabis access, about you know, so-called recreational use of marijuana. And, and they may have nothing to do with you, literally, you know, literally nothing to do with you. A million miles away from your hemp farm out there in, in Idaho. But you, you share a, a common value, which is to get the government out of your hair. <laughs> and and uh, you, we really need to be able to have this plant be treated as an agricultural product so that you can grow it you know, in, in various ways and, and have the protections that are afforded farmers in our system of, uh, of agricultural production. And uh, you know, the short-term thing that I'm working on with this uh, uh, 
treaty change is actually medical. And, and again, you know, if anyone is aspiring to get into uh, CBD products for medicine, things like that, uh, it may very well help to get cannabis out of schedule one, because again, it, it's, you know, just a, a peripheral problem that spills over into your space, I think is how I would say it for the hemp hemp side. Over and over and over again. And while CBD certainly gets so much attention. It- well, I, I just want to say that the, the, the thing that is in our U.S. law that's connected to the treaty that won't stop us at all from legalizing cannabis will actually provide the way for the attorney general to reschedule right now based on that treaty change. And I've talked to lawyers in the movement and they're like, well, how do we make the attorney general do this? And I'm like, wait a minute, it's written in a law. All he has to do is follow the law. Why isn't the attorney general following the law? The, uh, as best I can tell, if the attorney general followed the law right now, based on the treaty changes happened right now, we should have either three, four or five. And, and three, four or five schedule would take a lot of the heat off this conversation. I, I really think Absolutely. so. Absolutely. No, it most definitely would. And so the call to action, whether you support other forms of cannabis than hemp or not, whether you are completely against other forms of cannabis than hemp or not, the reality is we're talking about the cannabis plant. And if you're in the hemp industry and if you are growing hemp, you are growing cannabis and you're in the cannabis industry. And we've got to liberate this plant. It will continue to affect the hemp industry. It will continue to be an expensive and barrier to entry thorn uh, in the sides of hemp farmers and hemp entrepreneurs and and citizens uh, wanting to take maximum and optimal advantage of the versatile, valuable hemp crop if we do not liberate uh, this entire genus of cannabis. And so supporting that at the federal level and at the international level, uh, uh, lobbying our representatives for the United States at uh, the United Nations. Um, that's key. That's what's here. And last but not least, Michael, is there something that I missed, a question you wish I'd asked, or something you want to make sure that you tell the readers before we say goodbye? I mean, the, the listeners before we say goodbye. I'm so sorry, guys. Well, they may be reading this um, if it was a transcript. But yeah, um, I, I think I would extend a message. I was sort of leaning on talking to the hemp farmer there, but I would talk to the cannabis, you know, marijuana, if you will, activists out there and, and, and just, uh, you know, sort of tell them as well, be careful. I mean, we, we, we need to work together. Hemp is legal, legal, legal in the United States and can help uh, bridge this gap and bring cannabis up and, and make things on par and fix this, you know, help us fix this. Uh, but we, cannabis can, you know, look at it like a, person that's floundering around in the water, uh, you need to not drown the person that's trying to save you, right? So our cannabis movement, our marijuana movement needs to be very careful and cognitive, not to screw up the hemp movement (laughs) as we're trying to find parity. And I think that's the responsibility of our marijuana movement really is to to work on this uh, and, and not drag down hemp, not, you know, you'd step in the way. We had, uh, you know, activists in Virginia fighting back and forth where some activists broke off and were fighting against the farmers being able to grow CBD crops to produce a CBD product that they could sell in the marketplace and only allowing the CBD to be sold as a pharmaceutical. That's the position of the International Narcotics Control Board that we're fighting against. So it's not just at the international level that we have to fight these fights. 
Yes, no, that's generally also a, a normal position. The National Organization for the Form of Marijuana Laws, unfortunately, um, in many ways as well. And so we, we've got a we've got a constantly, which is case in point of how important it is for us to work together. What an awesome way to end this great interview, Michael. We'll have you back again. I cannot thank you enough um, from the bottom of my hemp and heart uh, for your tremendous and ongoing, tireless work on this on this issue, brother. Thank you for everything that you do, and thank you for being with us on Hemp Barons today. Oh, it's great to be here anytime, Joe. <laughs> anytime. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.